How well prepared are we for another pandemic flu outbreak? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is Dave Gruber. Mr. Gruber is the Senior Assistant Commissioner for the Division of Health Infrastructure Preparedness and Emergency Response for the State of New Jersey. Mr. Gruber, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you, Susan. I'm glad to be here. Let's start out with a history lesson. Tell us about the pandemic influenza outbreaks. Okay, well, we're only going to take it back uh, about 100 years here, and we're going to go back to probably the most significant outbreak, which was the 1918 Spanish flu outbreak. Um, that outbreak affected approximately 20 to 40 percent of the world population, and uh, anywhere from 20 to 50 million, depending on what reference you look at, died on that one. Within the United States, we lost about 675,000 citizens to the pandemic influenza outbreak at that point. And it was so severe that some people actually felt well in the morning and passed away that evening. So it was a, quite a significant outbreak. The next one we'll go to is in 1957, and that was called the Asian flu. That was quickly identified first in Asia in February, and by August there was actually a limited amount of vaccine available. The biggest spread of that, though, was in the fall when children turned to school, and I think that's significant because as we look at the, at the preparedness plans for a possible pandemic, we significantly focus on schools, uh, the effect that children might have on spreading a pandemic. During the 1957 Asian flu outbreak, uh, there were approximately 69,000 deaths in the United States. And also of significance, there was a second wave that occurred in January, February of 1958, which affected mostly the elderly. And I think, again, the important thing to take away from that one is that um, you can see waves of influenza when you have a pandemic. What was interesting in the 1957 epidemic was, or pandemic was that the most affected individuals were school children, pregnant women, and young adults, as opposed to the entire population, or excuse me, the, the younger adult population in the 1918 outbreak. And then finally, I uh, would like to bring up the 1968 Hong Kong flu, and that was first detected in the U.S. in September of 1968, but it peaked in December and January. And in that outbreak, there were 33,000 people in the world who were affected, mostly the elderly. And similar to the Asian flu, there was a peak, but it sort of decreased a little bit because the outbreak continued during the holiday season of the school year, and there was also improved medical care, which reduced the outbreak's deadliness. So that's, that's a brief history, and I think what brings us up to today. What defines a pandemic influenza outbreak? Very important point, because a pandemic influenza has some very, very important characteristics that differ from what we would call the seasonal flu outbreak. And uh, I guess I should also stress that in a seasonal outbreak, there can be as many as 30,000 people who die in the United States in a, in a seasonal flu. So when we talk about a pandemic, we're talking about something very, very significant. Very briefly, a pandemic flu is a virulent human flu that causes a global outbreak or a very, very large regional outbreak, which is what is classified as a pandemic. Because there's little natural immunity by humans, the disease spreads rapidly from person to person. And it's also characterized as a novel virus, meaning that it has not really exposed itself to humans before in that form. 
And right now, I should state, we are not in a pandemic. Uh, Any flu that you see right now is seasonal flu. How does a pandemic flu outbreak differ from other public health emergencies? Well, I think one of the most important factors of a pandemic flu outbreak is the fact that it just really hits everybody, hits everybody hard, and I think it hits the core of the uh, of the way we we actually act. If you look at a pandemic, it's it's a transnational event. Uh, comparing this with perhaps an explosion or anthrax attack, which may be localized, deadly nevertheless, but still a localized type event. When we talk about a pandemic, we're talking about a significantly greater degree of magnitude than many other public health emergencies. And I think what's also important to note is that a severe pandemic disrupts society. It'll cause the closing of schools. Businesses could shut down. You might not be able to go to athletic events or large gatherings. And the social strain is just as important as the economic strain, which can't be overlooked. Um, A pandemic is really going to stress every aspect of society. And I think another thing to recognize is that most Americans probably are unfamiliar with pandemics, and the unknown always makes people more anxious and more concerned. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is Dave Gruber, the Senior Assistant Commissioner for the Division of Health Infrastructure Preparedness and Emergency Response for the state of New Jersey discussing pandemic flu outbreaks. Mr. Gruber, tell us about the latest statistics regarding avian flu. The first thing I want to do is clarify the the terminology because a lot of people use avian flu and they interchange it with the term pandemic flu. And if if I could, Susan, I'd just like to clarify that if that's all right with you. Thank you. Please do. First of all, avian flu naturally occurs among birds and it doesn't necessarily translate into a pandemic. Without going into detail, avian flu may refer to many strains of a particular virus. Today, the term avian flu most frequently refers to the H5N1 strain of the avian influenza virus, and this is the virus that everybody um, has heard about in the news. But again, that's the bird infection version of it, and it's rare right now that this virus migrates over and infects humans. But to give you some of the details about it, we've had about, and uh, I think I have the, the numbers right here, there have been 385 confirmed human cases of what we'll call avian flu and confirmed by the World Health Organization. And to put this in perspective, 243 of those have resulted in deaths. I think it's important to note that none of these have occurred in the United States or North America. How is it diagnosed? In general, flu is diagnosed by a oropharyngeal swab. So a sample is taken from someone who might be infected, and then polymerase chain reaction PCR tests are done. And imagining the scope of your audience is very wide, just to define that a little bit, in essence, the, the sample comes into a laboratory and the PCR test amplifies the sample so that it's more easily detectable based on genetic analysis. So that's how it's, uh, in general, diagnosed. How is it treated? Right now, there is no true treatment of the virus. It's more a treatment of the symptoms coming from the virus. So, in essence, you would look at how you would provide care, uh, respiratory care, 
you can give antiviral agents such as Tamiflu if it's caught quick enough. But when we talk about a cure, it's not the same type of cure as you might say for a uh, for a bacterial outbreak where you give antibiotics. How is avian flu prevented? It's prevented basically by the same way you would prevent seasonal flu. Good hygiene is probably the best way to prevent being infected. And I think good hygiene both from people who come into contact with people who might be sick, but also if there's any fear that you are sick, if you continue to wash your hands, you continue to cover your mouth when you cough or or when you sneeze, or just good hygiene is really the answer to preventing an outbreak. Is a vaccine available? That's a two-part question, um, and I think a two-part answer, I should mention. And I think the first part is there is no vaccine available for the general public that is effective. However, there is a vaccine that is, and it's the only vaccine approved for the H5N1 virus, and that is, it was approved in, I think, April of 2007, and is held in our strategic, in, in our, not New Jersey's, but in the country's strategic national stockpile, and not available to the general public. A point to make is that the vaccine must be tailored to the virus. So when you ask, is there a vaccine available, my response is that there is no vaccine right now, with the exception of what I mentioned, for the H5N1 virus. Who does the vaccine protect? Could I ask some clarification when you say who does it protect? Are are you talking about a a type of individual or the sector? The type of individual. The vaccine in general is, is meant to protect everybody. However, in the study, The study looked at people from 18 through 64 years of age, and 45% of the individuals who received the vaccine developed antibodies that would have expected to reduce the risk of getting influenza. And how about the sector that you referred to? The sector is going to be a policy decision when or if the uh, pandemic hits and when or if there is vaccine the decision as to what sectors will be protected initially will be based on what sectors are needed in order for the continuation of society. There are significant ethical and policy questions that surround that and discussions that might take place, and these aren't necessarily medical discussions. So I think it would be premature for me to state exactly what sector would be affected there. How effective is the vaccine? The vaccine that I mentioned, again, is, is a limited vaccine. And again, the study showed that only 45% of the people who received, and to give the specifics, 90 micrograms of a two-dose regimen developed antibodies at a level that was expected to uh, reduce the risk of getting influenza. Although some others did develop antibodies that might protect them, the the actual number put out on the street is 45%. How can listeners learn more? Depending on where they are, there's many ways to learn more about it. I think the best way to go and get a lot of information is to go on the government website, the national government website, pandemicflu.gov, and that has all the information that would be out there. However, each state probably has their own website that references that. For example, in New Jersey, ours is www.njflupandemic.gov. And I'm sure, depending on where the listeners are, each one could look at their health department or uh, office of 
Homeland Security and find similar types of websites. What is your take-home message? I think the take-home message is that based on the scope of the disease and the possibility of mass disruption, people cannot neglect the fact that we've got to start preparing now. And we've got to start preparing not only in the areas of health, but in the areas of continuity of operations, continuity of government, and as I mentioned before, most importantly, continuity of society. And I think the last aspect is that hopefully this will never affect us, but if it does, everybody has to accept the fact that it's going to be a community response, and that's the only way that the state country and in in many ways the world will get through it. Mr. Gruber, thank you for joining us to discuss pandemic flu outbreaks. It's my pleasure, Susan. Thank you. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at ReachMD.com, which features our entire library of on-demand podcasts, or call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening.